Has anyone ever said to you that your voice doesn't match what you look like? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Has this just always been Reese's voice or did you swallow gravel and whiskey and cigarettes through your 20s? No, I, uh, I mean, yes, I did, but <laughs> even as a little kid, I, even as a little kid, I had a scratchy, weird voice. Hi, I'm Steve Joel, a radio host from New Zealand and a bit of a 40k nut. Thanks for listening to what I think is going to be a very cool episode of 40k Game Changers. Um, yeah, we just we just made it work just by literally just through willpower like there was no yeah. reason we should have succeeded like on paper someone said they were going to try and start a business that way i would tell them just go set the money on fire and save yourself two <laughs> years of agony like, don't, don't bother this podcast series celebrates our hobby by getting to know the people who have changed the way we play or paint or watch or listen to or read warhammer Forty Thousand. and it was the most it was the biggest pain in the ass I've ever dealt with in my life. And if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. That's how unpleasant it was to deal with all these angry gamers yelling at me nonstop for years. <laughs> but because we put up with all that crap and we built a good tool, it exploded. Today, we're going all the way to the top. If you've played in a tournament anywhere in the world, chances are it was shaped in some way by today's guest. It's kind of a big deal. Before we get going, though, if you like this chat, there are plenty more at 40kgamechangers.com. Conversations with Lawrence Baker and Rick Priestley and Richard Siegler and Winters and Mini Wargaming Dave, just to mention a few. Also, go like the 40k Game Changers page on Facebook. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, that's the plug. Now, on with the show. He is one of the pioneers in 40K podcasting with the OG signals from the front line. He's the founder of Frontline Gaming. He's the man behind the LVO, the biggest tournament in the world. The man behind the ITC, arguably outside of the people who write rules and make big decisions in the dungeons at G-Dub head office. You could say he's the most influential figure in the game of 40K right now. Reese Robbins, about time I got you on this podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Well... Considering that the, everything's going crazy, it's nice to be able to talk about something fun and uplifting like 40K. Thanks yeah, for yeah. Well, I thank you for being here. And uh, you know what? I just I've said this so many times before, but it's one of the things I love about the hobby is that you know the world has so many problems, and personally, we each have stuff to deal with in life. And this is just kind of a nice way of focusing on something else for a couple of hours at a time. Um, I've got to say, as a Kiwi, I love that you played rugby at San Diego State University. You're a rugby man and you know rugby. And so as a New Zealander, that makes me happy. You were yeah, a- you know, it's funny. Um, not very many people. It's becoming more popular in the States, but I played football in high school and then I played rugby in college. And um, it's, it's, a, it's an awesome game and really, really fun. So, yeah, it's always I, whenever I meet people from your neck of the, from the southern horizon or hemisphere, I always like to share that because it, it's such a fun game. And we we in New Zealand feel very passionately about it, but it's played in, you know, the UK and Ireland and France and South Africa and Australia as well. And, and not as well known in the States, but as you say, getting more popular because uh, Sevens Rugby is at the Olympics. So I'm guessing it's kind of led to a little bit of a surge over there. I think so. And a lot of people like me who played football in in high school or even in college now, you're seeing guys who didn't quite make the NFL, they're, they're playing rugby. So I think you're going to see it rise in popularity because we have some tremendous athletes here. And as the team starts doing better, it'll get more popular. And I think it'll be better for the sport in general um, to, to get you know more people involved. I think that just makes it more fun. I've got to say, though, the uh, the idea of the states becoming good at rugby is terrifying for New Zealanders. <laughs> We're quite happy with you guys doing NFL. You play American football. <laughs> you've got all these. You've got hundreds of thousands of guys that could just come in and toast us if you wanted to. So let's just leave things the way they are. We're good. Um, but look. <laughs> right, I don't know if anyone will ever knock you guys off the top of the mountain. <laughs> that, that, that is. Well, the Kiwis are our number one at uh, rugby. Listen, uh, let's do, let's get off rugby and talk about. Well, actually, let's start with this. Where did you grow up? Tell us tell us about that. Where where did you you know begin your life and and do your schooling? Yeah, so I lived you know, the first thirty eight years of my life in California, 
and I uh, was born in the Central Valley of California, which uh, most people, when they think of California, think of palm trees and L.A. or San Francisco. I grew up in the cowboy part oh, okay. of the state. You know, yeah, it's uh, you know, I, I grew up around horses and sheep and cattle, and you know, we had chickens, and my mom rode in the rodeo, and um, my my family is is real country. And that was where I grew up and um, moved kind of around the state. And um, when I was a kid, we finally moved to the coast. And then I started living the kind of quote unquote California life when I was in high school and then uh, kind of lived on the coast for the rest of my life thereafter, um, up and down the coast from San Diego to the Bay and back down. You give you give off kind of this... Um... And I don't know if the, this is the right way to say it, but a, a well-rounded kind of vibe. You're like, you're a little bit book smart. You're a little bit street smart. You got a bit sporty. You got a bit nerdy. Was it always that way with you? You always kind of, you know, had your fingers into everything and giving everything a go as a kid? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was always 50% nerd and 50% jock my, my whole life. Um, I always played sports and then I would always play games. I, you know, I got into D&D when I was really young and, I played Battletech, you know, from the ver- bo- the black box version of it back in, I think, 89, if I remember correctly. So I always had one foot in each kind of world. You know, I was riding horses, and then I was reading a D&D book. You know, that's, that's <laughs> been the story of my life the whole way through. <laughs> uh, I kind of have this image of you as a little kid businessman as well, kind of running around, starting ventures, making money at, at uh, what we call primary school. I don't know how you – grade school. Yeah, you know, I, I started mowing lawns in the neighborhood when I was, gosh, 10. Right. And then, um, I, you know, I would get money. I was always trying to, I always had a little side hustle thing going on most of my life. And in college, I was, I wrote papers for people. You don't tell my, don't tell the school. <laughs> but I paid for two trips to go to Europe by writing papers for other people. And wow. I've, always, I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Um, since I was pretty young. I feel like having a foot in both camps, the nerd camp and the jock camp, kind of helped with that as well. You kind of, some of those jocks needed a nerd on their side and you were, you were the guy, you were right there. Yeah, you know, it's just uh, I've always loved books as much as lifting weights my, my yeah. whole life. So it's, it, it's, been, um, it's been, you know, everyone's on their own journey and that's, yeah. that's been mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you get into 40K? When did that whole thing start for you? So I got into 40K when I went to England to visit my family. So my family is spread out all over the globe. I have, I have family in uh, basically the entire Commonwealth and in parts of South America. Um, so I went to, to England to visit my, my family and two of my cousins who are roughly my age were like best buddies. And they took me to a games workshop in uh, Cambridge. And it was, I mean, it was like stars in my eyes. I walk in and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And uh, I was I was twelve, twelve or thirteen, and um, I bought the that was right when the Dark Millennium box set came out. So I bought that, went home in a second edition for people who don't know what I'm talking about. And I went home and I recruited all my buddies to start playing, and so that was it. You know, from I've been a, very enthusiastic about it ever since. The only time I. I didn't play was when I was in college and that was because I was just too busy. Um, I was working, playing sports. I was in a fraternity and I was going to school. So I just didn't have time. But then right when I graduated college, I started playing again. It's funny eh, when you, when you go into a store, people, people are going to either get it or not. And I was the same, although much older than you, when I first walked into a store, it is funny when you walk in, you just go, these models, these images, this thing, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And you're in just like that. And I, I don't know if it's the same for everybody, if you're, you're either instantly in or then or never in. I don't know if there is a, such a thing as a slow burn with 40K, but I feel like an awful lot of people will just have that same experience that you did. They just walk in and bam, that's it. You're lost to it. What was your first army that you decided, okay, this is it. I've got to do these guys. So the Dark Angels were immediately the one that appealed to me. And back then, they had a Native American theme, at least with the Deathwing, right? Like they had all the feathers and all this yeah. cool stuff. And uh, my uh, on, on my mom's side of the family from Oklahoma, Arkansas, 
my great grandma was Cherokee, and then it was something that we always grew up. My grandpa was always telling, teaching me about it, and all this cool stuff. So I was like immediately drawn to that. Um, and then you know, as time goes on, they kind of shifted the lore just a little bit, and then uh, and then I jumped in on Catachan because it was just you know, it's like uh, uh, the predator, you know, the movie Predator. It's like all the guys <laughs> yeah. from from Predator, and I was like, oh, this is just too cool. And uh, those are the two armies that I got into first. And, you know, when you're a kid, um, you save up your money, you buy a model. So it was a slow burn back then. But those are the two armies that drew me in initially. Yeah, again, it's a, and it, that carries on all the way through to now. You still see people posting pictures on Facebook all the time of like the the, the cast of Predator painted up and you know as models, um, which is fun. Were you a painter? You guy that got into the painting side straight away, or did you paint just to get them on the table? No, I I, I love painting. I don't paint as much anymore because I'm so pressed for time. Um, but I loved painting. I was initially. I was much more of a narrative slash hobbyist. Um, that was the way I played the game. I was much more into the um, almost playing like D&D style games where there was a story and, and you named all your guys. And, you know, I, I painted the majority of my models and I have, you know, well over a thousand, probably 2000 at this stage, which is insane. Uh, so I, I, I really enjoy the, the hobby aspect of it. But back then as a kid, I mean, you didn't, you didn't have, you know, this is pre-internet really in, in, in the sense that it exists now. So you had to learn to paint by reading the tutorials in White Dwarf yeah. and trying to copy it. That's right. And then when I, um, I, yeah, you know, so like all my old models have the goblin green base with the flock. And um, I remember the first time I saw a base that was not that way. I was like, oh, you can do that? Like, yeah. Um, but I had a buddy, Tyson Coach, who's a phenomenal multiple Golden Demon winning painter. He's, he's phenomenally talented. Um, he had a, pose, a a piece of paper up in the game store that said, looking for people to play with. So I ripped a little piece of paper off, called him. And then he basically taught me how to paint for real. And so from there, I've gotten, I've gotten, I would say I'm like above average painter. I'm, you know, nothing special, but I can paint an army where I put it on the table and people will compliment it and I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's good. And and so how did you get into the competitive side of it then? Was it through Tyson that, you know, he taught you to, that you, that you got to play with him and then you went on from there or how did you get into playing and then tournament play? So the, the I got into tournament play. It's actually a really funny story. Um, I didn't know there were tournaments, right? I'm Naturally, I'm a very competitive person, I'm not obnoxiously so, so, but I'm, I love com- competition. I, I find it to be uh, thrilling. Yeah. And uh, in high school, I went to uh, my first tournament, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, you can you can actually go to a tournament." I didn't even know because again, this is pre really pre internet, so like everything is word of mouth. And um, I went to a, a tournament. I brought my Dark Angels army that looked like from the inside of the book, you know, Devastator Squad, where every guy's got a different gun and all this silly stuff, which isn't very good. And I was doing really well in the tournament. And then I, I, in the last round, I played a guy that was playing Space Wolves. And back then, Space Wolves were ludicrous. His whole army was one unit of Wolf Guard where everyone had a Cyclone missile launcher. (laughs) He shoots all of them. And back then, for every missile you shot, the radius of the explosion increased by an inch. So he shoots a a one-foot diameter crack missile. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that was my first experience of like, this is broken, you know? And yeah. I, I was like, I was like morally outraged. That something like this could possibly exist. Uh, that's so good. And so this is your first taste of tournaments. And I imagine you get to these things because, as you say, pre-internet for us, everything was like, you know, you go to a store and someone's handing out a flyer. That's how you find out about something. Or you've got a buddy who tells you about it and offers you a ride in their car. So you get to go to this tournament, and you obviously had a good enough experience that you wanted to go back for more. Yeah, and from there, I started to get really involved in community organization. Um, and then again, I took a little bit of a break in college because I just I just had too much on my plate. And then um, right after college, the Dawn, the first Dawn of War video game came out, and it was like, oh, yeah. So I went home. I got all my models out of the closet start getting involved again. And um, at this point in time, I was living in San Diego. I went to San Diego State. San Diego had an amazing, still does, 
had an amazing organized uh, scene for narrative play, competitive play. And then I met some players there that were exceptionally good. And they just kicked my ass. But I was like, hey, guys, can you teach me? Because I, I want to be better. And that was it. And, it. and right around this time, the online community blossomed. Like places like Daka Daka, Bolter and Chainsword. Um, and then there were some of the older ones that aren't really around anymore. Um, and that was when we, we, as a community, we started to get really organized. And I was, in, the timing was right. I was early 20s, ton of energy. You know, I had a job, so I actually had a little bit of money. And I got really, really involved with everything. Um, and, and, and it just kept progressing. Because it just—it was so much fun to not only play and be good at the game, but also to help organize things. And I learned from—I learned from the people who were um, the best. You know, like I learned about organizing tournaments from people like the Adepticon guys, and, and I learned about uh, how to have a good online presence from people like um, Yakface, who's one of the owners of Daka Daka, and all this sort of stuff. It was really good timing, and you know, a ton of enthusiasm. They kind of put me on the path, and I just kept going with it. So uh, I'm interested when you you just mentioned you kind of learned to play from some guys who are phenomenally good. Give give us some names of people who are around at that time in the San Diego scene. Yeah, there was a, go- a bunch of guys. It was like Jeff Jeff Zatkin. Uh, he owns a, a company that does video game analytics. Was one of the pioneers in that industry. Um, my buddy Dave Fay, who was exceptionally good, he won the first Warhammer GT in America and he beat uh, one of the guys that wrote Warhammer and he was only like 14 at the time. <laughs> um, and then my buddy Shane and they were like so much more down the road of being good at, at 40 K and they took me under their wing and taught me. And then I started getting really good. And we're all, all of those guys were all still friends to this, to this day. Um, it was just a great group of guys, and they're, they're, I'm, I believe there's too many people to name. Right. But you know, I owe them a debt of gratitude for being positive and, and being good organizers, and being good at the game, and good painters. And um, it really just opened my eyes to like, oh, how much bigger, how much bigger the hobby is than I thought it was back then. Right. I, I'm, I just want to take one little pause here and stop at, at uh, San Diego State University. Because uh, I did see that you went, you're a Phi Kappa Theta. We don't have fraternities. In fact, I don't think they have them anywhere but the states. They don't exist in the UK or Europe or in Australasia. Um, so all we know about fraternities is what we've learned in things like movies like Revenge of the Nerds and Animal House. Is that what the world is like that in is, a fraternity? <laughs> that is exactly – that's one of the few times – when I would say the movies are not actually embellishing. Wow. Like, I mean, just imagine you, you take a bunch of kids who just moved out of the house for the first time. They're all rambunctious, full of energy. You put them all in one gigantic house yeah. and take away any supervision. And it's like, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. And uh, I, I was on the rugby team too. And the rugby team was the exact same thing. Wow. You know, so it's, but, it, but it's cool. Like there's ups and downs. Obviously, there's there's positive and negative stereotypes that people are familiar with, and they're all they're all you know true to a greater or lesser degree. But it gives you lifelong friends, and it also helps with your future because the people that come before you and they go out into the world, they can help you get going in life. And yeah. so it's it's um it's not for everybody, but but if it's something that would appeal to you and there's different flavors of them like some of them are oriented towards business some of them are oriented towards sports or fun or you know whatever um it really does help put you on a path to achieve more in life um through through these networks that they give you and it's just a boatload of fun yeah you know just like being on the rugby team it's not just playing rugby it's going out learning all the songs and the history of your club and all this fun stuff yeah the jfk was one of the uh, he's a he's a Phi Kappa Theta guy, most, Bob Hope and pro poker player Theo Tran also. Yeah, so you know some of our most illustrious illustrious alumni. Yeah, also um, I think Paul Allen, one of the founders of Apple, was one of our guys too, and he bought the house for the for the chapter up in uh, Washington, and it's like it has an elevator and all this oh crazy God. stuff. <laughs> wow. 
Okay, so I'm sorry. I got off on a tangent there just because as a, as a person not from the States, I'm fascinated by the whole fraternity thing. Um, and no wonder, no wonder you didn't have time for 40K <laughs> during the university years. Rugby fraternity, as you said, working hard at school. Did you have, did, did you have a, a cool nickname, a cool rugby team nickname or fraternity nickname? Yeah, yeah, and I also worked too. I also managed a store at that time, so I was like, it was ludicrous. My days were so long, yeah. but fun. And yeah, I did. I had a really stupid nickname. It was Rocco Masako. <laughs> Rocco Masako. <laughs> Where did that come it from? A, I, I don't know. It was just a silly name, and, I, and right. some of my old friends. When they see me, they still call me Rocco. But anyone would be like, "Who the hell are you talking about?" Yeah, isn't it funny how? Uh, when you play, I've got I know guys I played rugby with back in the day who I don't know their real names. I only know their yeah. nickname. I was in the street and I was with my wife and I bumped into a guy I haven't seen him for probably 15, 20 years. And all I know is that his name is Fuller because he's Fuller, you know. He, and uh, I don't know his real name. So I had to say to my wife, oh, this is, this is Fuller. <laughs> That's all I know him as. <laughs> <laughs> Same as your buddy's calling you Rocco. They probably don't even know. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's so funny how those stick. You know? I feel like you've given us a little bit of a taste of how you went from getting back into the game. So we've gone to a university and then we've come out and you've got your degree, your BA, and you've studied English uh, literature and letters and so on. And you've come out with a degree and you've kind of, now you're getting involved in the 40K community. And there's so much going on. And as you said, the timing is there. And you know all these people have kind of got influence in the game at that point. So uh, talk us through getting from there to whatever it was that came first. Was it the podcast or was it the tournaments or was it the store? What came first and how did you get there? So the the, the BAO, the tournament came first. And that was um, I was a part of a different company that we were trying to start with two of my buddies from high school. So moved up to the Bay. Um, that company didn't work out, unfortunately, but um, I made friends with Frankie and um, a bunch of the other guys that, you know, everybody knows now from, from my gaming and they had a club. And so I joined their club and then we talked about starting a tournament and that was how the BAO came about. So right when the BAO was going, my the startup that I was a part of, unfortunately folded and I was kind of in a tough spot, but the tournament went really well. And I still had just a little bit of money saved up. And um, one of the guys who was originally part of, of one of the founding members of, founding members of Team Zero Cop and Family Gaming, Will, he found a little tiny a little tiny retail space. And I mean tiny, 450 square feet, which is like 115 square meters or whatever it happens to be. And the price was unreal. It was like unbelievably cheap. So I was out of work and looking for something and the timing was right. And uh, I talked to the guys and I was like, you guys want to take a shot at this? So we did. And that was when we started Frontline because coming off the success of the BAO, I was like, hey, we have a good team. We work well together. We had some success. Why don't we why don't we give it a shot? You know, I got a little bit of money we could throw into this and see how it goes. And um, through absolute luck and pure determination, we grew the company from nothing with no money. Um, and over time of just reinvesting all the money back into the company, it, you know, it got some traction and it just kind of kept going and going and going. And, you know, the first couple of years was bananas. You know, I was living in uh, Jason, the salty banana, one of the our former employees, he since left the company, but I lived in his living room for the first year. Frankie was working two jobs. Um, we, we had no money, none. It was really a struggle, but it was it was very fulfilling. And then just being patient and building and building and building and taking big risks and then taking whatever money we got, putting it back into the company, we've now built it into something we're really proud of, but it was it was not easy. So when you talk about, uh, you know, you got your, your, your space, your 115-square-meter space, 450 square feet, uh, you've organized a BAO. What did you do with that space? Are you talking about that's when you created the store or you're looking at that was your office space for creating more tournaments? What was the the original push? All of the above. Right? So it was a store. <laughs> right. okay. we, had, we, had room, we had room for two tables. Um, my office, in air quotes, was about one foot from the bathroom. Yeah. Frankie sat on a stool, like a little tiny stool in the corner, 
where he was answering the phone and he was on the, the hobby table. Um, we painted all the armies because we had to, we launched the paint studio too. So we would be painting a while people are in there asking us questions. We're trying to organize the next event. Um, yeah, we just, we just made it work just by literally just through willpower. Like there was no yeah. reason we should have succeeded. Like on paper, someone said they were going to try and start a business that way. I would tell them, just go set the money on fire and save yourself a few years of agony. Like, don't, don't bother. It does go against all of the, you know, you've got to raise some capital, have some proper, you know, structures, all this. So you've got you've got a, a small space. You're sleeping in a friend's living room, and Frankie's working two jobs, and you physically have a physical store and hobby space, and at the same time you're organizing tournaments. So after the BAO, what came after that? What was the next big thing tournament-wise? So we, we were we were able to go into the black immediately because our overhead was almost zero, right? Like the rent was like four hundred and fifty bucks a month, which is unreal. And the reason it was so cheap is that it was a section eight building, which for people in other countries they don't know what that means. It's government subsidized uh housing for underprivileged people. So we had a bunch of people above us who had um mental illness or drug addiction. Right. And I don't mean to laugh because that's awful and I feel I feel for them, but that was the environment we were working in, right? Like right. I can tell you endless stories of unbelievable stuff yeah. of people wandering in the shop that they didn't even know what planet they were on. And yeah. um, But that was why the rent was so cheap. So our overhead was so low that we were able to start making money immediately. And um, I, had, I had built up a bit of an online reputation from blogging previously and that was what let us launch our, our e-commerce store in the early days so people would actually trust to buy from us right not a lot but a little bit and that was the only reason we were able to get any traction is because if we made any money at all we could take all of it and put it back into the company um you know we, we had almost no overhead that's the only reason it worked so we're going we're chugging along we're we're, we're growing every month but we're still you know the amount of revenue we're generating was nothing. So the next opportunity was uh, GW ran an event called the Throne of Schools in Vegas. We we all you had to get an invitation to go. It was a big deal. It was really fun, but it only went one year. Now having run events in Vegas, I understand they probably lost a ton of money. It's <laughs> extremely expensive. Yeah. But being young and dumb, we were like, oh, why didn't it happen again? We should do. We should fill the vacuum in the marketplace. So we did, and we took a huge, I mean, we literally bet the farm. We bet the whole business that we could make it work. And that was the first LVO in 2014, and thank God it did. And we didn't lose our ass. And that was the big next step that, that really pushed us forward and made people know who we were and gave us a little revenue bump, and then we put it all back into the company, and it let us, it let us take the next step. So the LVO 2014. By then, you've got signals going as well, right? I feel like signals was around the 2011 mark. You've kind of uh, you're doing a, a bit of podcasting, and I assume that's from somebody's garage with cockroaches running around, or from that same space of 450 square feet. Oh yeah, we did it in the store with a ten dollar microphone that we got from Fry's Electronics and Frankie's laptop, and we're literally sitting there while people are in the store doing the podcast. And hilariously, there was a bus stop. Right outside the door, and because we were too poor, right. we were too poor to afford air conditioning, so we always had to leave the door open because it was hot as hell in there. And so the bus would stop, and we were, it was like the timing was impeccable. It was always when we were recording. Yeah, I remember. Do you know what I've heard? I've I I've, I feel like I've heard that or heard about that enough times that I feel like I've heard it. It's that's yeah, because it would it would it would pull up, and it was like beep 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 beep. beep. You know, gosh. <laughs> Classic production values for a 40K podcast. So who were you uh, trying to emulate at that time? If we just uh, stick with Signals for a second. So Signals from the front line, you get that going. Are there other podcasts around that you're like, we need to do what they're doing or avoid doing what they're doing? Is there anyone that you're trying to emulate? Yeah, so the only reason we were successful, well, two reasons. And it was neither of them was the production value. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> The only reason we were successful, because back then it was hard to figure out how to even do it. Now it's like every like every Tom, Dick, and Harry has a, a podcast, which is great, in my opinion. But back then it was hard to even figure out how to do it, right? So there was a barrier to entry. Um, 
And Frankie and I were really good at the game, right? So we really did know what we were talking about. And uh, we kept it short. You know, back then it was 15 to, t- to 30 minutes. And we banged it out twice a week, super simple. And we, we found an audience. But the, the other reason it was successful is because there was no one else out there. It was a blue water market. And the big dog in the, in the yard was 40K radio. And so we were like, well, the first time I heard 40K radio, I was like, I thought it was like magic. I was like, there's a radio show on the internet that talks about 40K and my mind exploded. So that was who we were trying to emulate. And back then, I think you could count on one hand the amount of podcasts that were in existence. So we jumped in because I was like, oh, guys, this this is a great way for us to get our name out there and we can share the knowledge that we have. And maybe people that will listen will become customers. Like, let's let's try it. And uh, Frankie figured out how to actually do it, how to actually do the podcasting. And then off and away we went. And it, it almost immediately got traction because we were the only ones that were doing nitty gritty, competitive nuts and bolts, you know, that kind of content. So we found our niche immediately. Right. Yeah. It's really important. Actually, you've mentioned his name a few times and it was remiss of me not to say right at the start that Frankie has been with you for this whole, well, for almost all of the journey. Is that fair to say that he was there right at the beginning? You two are still doing it. So he's been there right along beside you the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're equal partners, and I'm um, I'm the I'm the more outward facing partner, yeah. and that's why a lot of people erroneously think that frontline gaming is mine. But we're equal partners. He he likes to he likes to keep a lower profile, which I think is smart. He doesn't get bombarded with bullshit all the time. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and he he runs. He, you know, he's one of my best friends. He's like my brother. We've been together this whole journey. But, um, you know, he's invaluable to frontline gaming. He's super smart. He's figured out all of our manufacturing processes, all of our logistics. Um, he figures out a lot of the technical stuff, but he just, it's his preference to kind of fly under the radar, which I think is really smart for his mental health. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if, if one of your podcasts uh, does something really controversial, he's, he doesn't get emails about it. You do. <laughs> now, so I was going to touch on this anyway, Um and ask you what you would say to people who wanted to say run tournaments or get a podcast going. And maybe one of the things you would say is have someone like Frankie around. Like it's so good to have someone to bounce ideas off who is your equal partner, who's got your back and you've got theirs all the way along. Is it, is it super important to have that launching into what you guys did? Yeah. You know, it's, that's a really, we could have a whole podcast talking about the difference between, starting a venture by yourself or with a partner or partners and there's pros and cons. Um, this was from the gaming is my fifth business. So when we, um, when we launched and Frankie and I were, were talking about it and at the time he was only, he just turned 21. Um, and I was still in my twenties too. <laughs> Memory. <laughs> yeah. Good old days. I was like, Hey man, I was like, just, you know, I was like, just, just, we we are getting married for all intents and purposes legally, and and we need to be able to work out disagreements, and you know, financially we'll be tied to to each other for even years after this ends, right? Like, so we really got to. I was like, you really, we both really need to think about this. Is like, if you're going to go into a partnership, it has to be give and take. You have to treat each other as equals. You have to listen. You know, it's just, it's like being married. You have to have a good communication and and. In a business, especially, it's easy to think that you need to be bullish and do everything your way, and that's that's a recipe for disaster. If that's the way you are, go solo. But yeah. if you're a team player, if you have a cooperative mindset, having a partner is infinitely better, in my opinion. But you really need to understand that person's psychology. You need to understand your own. And then you have to make sure that you're both on the same wavelength and treat each other with respect. If you can do that, two people putting their brains together is like – four times better than one brain on its own, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. No, I have to agree, 100%. And I, I feel like I'm a little bit like you as well in that uh, sometimes I won't even realize you can do a thing a certain way until somebody points it out. But then once I see it, I go, holy crap, that's possible. And then the world explodes and all the other possibilities kind of come into focus as well. And having another person alongside to help with that, I think, is is really important. You know, it's funny because when I was setting up this podcast, this interview with you, Normally what I do with people is I kind of separate it chronologically and go, well, let's talk about this phase and then this phase and then this phase. But with 
with you and Frankie and, and the tournaments and the podcast and the business, it's all so entwined that you can't kind of separate it out. It's all, everything just goes hand in hand in hand all the way along. And it, I feel like it grew as one grew, the other grew. It all grew together. Is that right? Yeah, we, again, someone was like, I'm going to start five businesses simultaneously <laughs> with $10,000 and no experience. I would say, don't do it. Don't do that. Don't but do what Reese did. But that's what we, yeah, that's literally what we did. We only had 10 grand, which is a lot of money, right? Like that's not an insignificant amount of money. But to start a business, it's insanity. It's barely enough to, to buy product to put on the shelf, right? Like you're instantly, <laughs> you're instantly do or die. And like, so we also started a blog. We also started the podcast. We were jumping into running events. We were jumping into the retail game. And we started the paint studio all at the exact same time, having very little to no experience in every one of those categories. But it, the, if, you can, if you can do it, if you can dedicate the time to it, the diversification helps you ride out tough times because you're not reliant on one revenue stream. Yeah. However, dividing your attention means that every one of those, every one of those businesses is going to grow slower but it gives you more defense, right? It gives you the ability to withstand the bumps, the inevitable storms that we're going to, that are going to come your way. I'm trying to imagine you telling your folks and your friends when you came out of San Diego State and you've gone into this situation that you're describing, I'm trying to imagine you telling them, you know what, forget about the degree. I'm going to go, I'm going to make 40K my future. This is my business. This is what I'm going to do. What was the reception like amongst your friends and family? I've always done really kind of crazy stuff. Like I, I tried to ride a bicycle around the world and I'd, uh, I'd already started other businesses and all kinds of wild stuff. So like my family was, it was part of the course from their point of view. Right. And um, when I, when we started this one, I'd come off of two back-to-back failures. So I had two like very ambitious startups that I'd done with some friends. We lost all our money both times. And then with the last one, I had just a little, little chunk left. Um, and when I, when I talked to my parents, I was like, Hey, cause they know I'm a lifelong gamer. And I was like, Hey, like, this is something that I'm passionate about. This is my last shot. I want to, I want to give it one more try to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, in the, in the mental emotional space I was in, I was like, I'll die before I fail again. Cause I was really, I was really low emotionally from failing twice. And it really got me down and undermined my confidence. But my mom, I remember my mom was like, I can tell from the way you're talking that this is going to work. Cause it was like grim. Like I will literally sleep in my car and eat rice for the next two years. If that is what I have to do. Yeah. And that just kind of like grim determination, they could see it. So they didn't, they didn't doubt me like, which was really nice. The support helped a, a ton. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's massive. It would be very easy for people to be cynical about it. Um, uh, you know, going into it. Um, so you throw away all of the other options. You fully commit. You've got Frankie beside you. You've got, and not just Frankie. To be fair, at the time you've kind of got a group of you, and you're all you're all getting into it. Uh, and then from there, as you say, just investing and growing and investing and growing. And tell me about the LVO when you first started. That how many people came and and could you see the possibility that one day this would be as big as it is? Yeah, we we actually we believed it could be a big event, but back then. A 256-person event was the biggest event of all time, right? So, or just a little bit above that, right? And that was the biggest event. No, 256, that was. That was it. And so we thought, and, you know, we're, we're all, like, grandiose dream. Like, wow, we're going to go to the moon. You know, that's, that's just our, our kind of American enthusiasm, I think. <laughs> it's just inherent. But the, the event was a success. Thank, thank God. And if you look at the promo video that Frankie and I put out, first of all, we look like babies. Second of all, we're, we're literally begging people. We're like, please come and please stay at the hotel. We're going out of business. <laughs> right. and, um, and, and, and it went, and we had 450-ish people, a little over that. Wow. And it was a smashing success, in our opinion. And, it, you know, we, the event was on par with some of the biggest events in the world, which at the time was like Adepticon and Nova. And we were just, we were over the moon. We were like, we did it. And it gave us so much confidence. And then shortly thereafter, we, we, the ITC came about, and it was just really from one success to another, still living on less than minimum wage, you know, <laughs> but the company really started to gain traction at that point, and we started to, we started to take bigger, bigger steps. 
When you uh, say the ITC came about, it makes it sound like, well, the ITC just kind of blossomed with no work at all. What was the idea behind the ITC? Why did that come about? I feel like the ITC is like, is a, is a big deal, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But how, what was the original motivation for it? What was the original idea? Well, like with so many things we've done, it's seeing a gap in the marketplace and filling it. That's that's been the frontline gaming secret to success. <laughs> just, just giving people things that they want, right? And doing it mostly on instinct. To be, I wish I could say I was some mastermind, but I'm not. Um, previously, there had been the uh, Rankings HQ, which was an Australian company, and they were the first ones in the market. And it was super cool and super exciting. We all watched it. It had some serious flaws, and I don't mean to, to be negative towards them. The owner, whose name I, I forget, I've met him a couple of times, a really nice guy. And um, he went out, he tried to make it work. He had some serious flaws in the math, in my opinion, and just in the way it was structured. He gave it a really good shot. It didn't work out. He folded. So now there's a, there's a demand for the service, but a gap in the marketplace. So then we jumped in. I had no idea what I was doing. And in the old days of the ITC, the first year we had like 400 people. I was thrilled. I couldn't believe 400 people gave a crap about our ranking system. And uh, it was a little over 400 people. But I was literally taking everyone's score, putting it into a spreadsheet, and manually doing it, and then uploading it every week. And as it started to grow, it took me like six hours to update the rankings every week. It was such a pain in the butt. Um, And then uh, my buddy... Adrian, also from Australia, he's Tindane. He reached out and he was like, do you need help? And I was like, please, for the love of God, yes, please help me. <laughs> and and he, he helped with scripting it and he showed me how to use SQL. And um, he was invaluable to help. Super duper nice guy, too. And um, then we started to automate it. And then from there, it, just, it kept growing and growing and growing. And really what put it over the edge is when GW pulled away and stopped supporting FAQs and and they really went into the ivory tower, which was a terrible terrible move. But it opened up a, a, a vacuum in the marketplace for anybody to answer rules questions because nobody was doing it. And since we were in a, the right place at the right time, people actually listened to us. And it was the most it was the biggest pain in the ass I've ever dealt with in my life. And if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. That's how unpleasant it was to deal with all these angry gamers yelling at me nonstop for years. (laughs) But because we put up with all that crap and we built a good tool, it exploded. It it exploded in popularity. And ironically, that's how we got involved with GW is that they had a change in policy. They reach out to us and, you know, in, in, in long story short, they're like, if you guys are tired of writing the FAQ, why don't you help us? with the real one. And I was like, thank, thank the emperor. I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, none of it would have happened. I also have to, I also have to mention, I'd be remiss if I didn't, that we took over the INAT fact, which existed before us and was created by John Regal from Dakadaka and the Adepticon guys and Hank and, and all those wonderful people. And they were all moving into a point in life when they didn't want to deal with it anymore any, either. So when we had the ITC and it was growing, they bequeathed to us that, which further legitimized us, and they taught me how to do it. So I, I have to give them props because they they are really the pioneers of that. Right. And it, it's um, I feel like the ITC, and you say timing was really important, but also this uh, nerds, we us nerds, we love stats. We love numbers and stats and this idea of a ranking system. I feel like we all would latch onto that immediately. Uh, was it that quick? You said 400, but it was, was it that readily accepted that nerds were like, yes, ranking system, I want in, I'm, I'm into this, let's sign up, how do we do that? Yeah, well, yes and no, right? So it immediately took on on the West Coast because we knew everybody. We went to every event, everyone knew who we were, and even if they didn't, you know, we're not their best friend or whatever, they might even not like us personally, which is fine. They trusted us, right, because we were a known element. So it took off on the West Coast, and then it was this long and painful, drawn-out process to get other people to buy into it because everyone understood. I was like, because at that point I'm friends with all, pretty much all the tournament organizers in the world, not all, I should say, but many. 
And I had been trying to work on a unified format since before frontline gaming. And everybody understood. I was like, Hey guys, like if we all use the same system, it's going to make it easier for people to come to our events. Cause we're, at that back then, everyone was playing a different version of the game. I was like, why don't we just all join forces? I was like, we just have to compromise. It's not a big deal. So everyone was like, that's a great idea if we use my system. And I'm like, oh, come on, <laughs> yeah. man. Like everyone yeah. just give, just give and get a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was a long process and really the, 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 the thing that made it work, the thing that made it go was not only that GW wasn't doing it, it was that we gave up control. So the, the, the silver bullet was largely me just being so fed up. I was like, okay, everyone gets a vote. This is a democracy. Everyone can vote on what they want to do. I was like, I trust that the gamers are educated and good enough gamers that when we put all of our brains together, we'll come up with the best of all solutions. And it worked. Right. Ironically, it was not trying to control it that made it take off and people bought into it. I was like, democracy works. This is the perfect <laughs> yeah. example. Yeah. And we have to remember that. So, so I uh, oversimplified there by just calling it a ranking system because you're right. The main thing about it is, in fact, this commonality through all of the events, the ITC events you go to, this, this, the the commonality of rules, interpretations, and you know all of that stuff. This kind of package deal and rankings is just a part of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like anything, right? Like coming up with a really good incentive structure. Where, because anybody who's going to start a tournament is like a is an A type personality, typically speaking, and I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean there's someone who's they believe in themselves, they're a self starter, they're they're confident, they're going to go out and get it done. So when someone else is like, oh, don't do what you're doing, do what I'm doing, that's going to obviously not that's going to ruffle their feathers, right? Which is totally understandable. But when the players are the ones saying, hey, why don't we try this? Then it's way easier because then the person who's taking the financial risk and putting in the work and say, oh, I'm just doing what my players want, right? Yeah. And it, and that was why it worked. And, and the reason that it worked was not because of some nefarious scheming. It was because we let go of the reins and we said, everyone gets an equal vote and we're all going to decide as a group how we want to play the game. And then it was like, of course the players are going to evangelize the system because they helped make it. Is it amazing to you that I'm running an event in New Zealand in, I don't know, a month, six weeks, something like that, at the other end of the world, and I have applied to get an ITC token like it is? Is it mind-blowing to you that this has become a global thing? It, it really is. We never in our wildest dreams. Like, we never – we our wildest dream for LVO was 500 people. We thought that was a pipe dream, but I was like, let's aim big, guys. Let's see 500 people. <laughs> Woo! And then we did that in like year three. And you're like, oh, wow, holy crap. Yeah. Um, and then the ITC, when we started getting people from like South Africa, uh, Thailand, uh, all over Europe, and we were just like, holy cow, this is unreal. It was seriously surreal. And then when we got the phone call from GW, I was like, what planet? What is going on? Yeah. You know, it was it was really neat. It was really neat, so, and none of us thought that that was going to happen. Well, let's talk about that. So how did that all – so this is – and this is a, the latest, biggest thing. You and G-Dub are uh, working together now. How did that come about, and then, and then what does that look like going forward? Yeah, so the the dream for the ITC has always my, – my, my personal vision and the team's vision um, – I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like I'm being possessive – but like the, the thing in my head when we started the ITC, which was, which was um, kind of my, 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 my baby, so to speak, uh, was I had a vision of people filling up a stadium for 40K, right? I don't know if it'll ever happen, but that's the, that's the dream that's been striving towards. And to have it be on the same level as esports or something like that, even though esports didn't really exist in a meaningful sense back then. So that was always like, oh, man, this is what we're striving towards. And we may not get there, but it'll be cool no matter how far we get. Pretty quickly on, our, like, a lot of the things we wanted to do, like this amazing invitational that GW is doing where they're paying for people to come. That was what we always wanted to do that, but I just didn't have enough money to do it. Because straight up couldn't afford to do that. Yeah. And so pretty early on, when, when our relationship with GW started developing, to me at least it occurred – Man, if GW was involved, we could do so much more cool stuff because they have effectively unlimited resources. Like, so that was kind of like where it all began. And I, unfortunately, I can't delve too much into it because of NDAs and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. 
it was this mutual it was this mutual recognition of the value of the system that was in place and a mutual acknowledgement that hey i'm super proud of how far we've come but gosh it could go so much further um with with, with gw directly involved and so now now what does that uh how does that manifest for us players particularly players in the states but around the world we are itc at, and we're going to events. How does that work for all of us having GW and you teamed up together? So for this year, it's it's largely business as usual. There's some really cool stuff coming, but um, like they said, uh, they've already handed out full armies to people, like including Forge World stuff, like which is insane. Uh, people at the LVO already won that. They're handing out full full like paid trips to this invitational event, which is going to be outstanding. Um, TOs are going to get all the digital rules for free. There's some, there's some terms there that GW is going to roll out soon. People that win an event um, that fall within certain specifications, which GW is going to roll that out, they're going to get a free codex. So if you're running an event in Timbuktu and you, and you meet all the criteria, which, um, which will come out soon, the winner of your event will get a free codex. And okay. that's global. As I understand it, I hope I'm not saying anything wrong, but that's the way it's been explained to me. And then that, that's just the beginning, right? Like, that's just step one. And it, there's going to be so much more cool stuff. The GW team is really enthused about it. Mike, uh, Mike Brandt is one of my really good friends, and he, you know, he's a, a brilliant tournament guy. He's really heavily involved on their side. So I have full confidence that it's just going to be so much cooler than it could have ever been. Due to not because of any lack of vision on our part, but a lack of resources. How much more possible is this now that GW have? Well, you mentioned that the phase they went in where they went into their ivory tower. About the time I got into the game was when they were coming out of that ivory tower and really embracing the community and really uh, taking on feedback. And, you know, this is beginning to sound uh, like a GW. plug you know a big promotion for gw that's not how it's intended i just love the game and i really have only been involved since they've been very positive about the feedback but how how much uh, has it helped you having someone like mike brandt on the inside the fact that they embraced him brought him into it and his having his experience and then your relationship i mean i'm not gonna lie when when that job posting went up i was i was i was like please let somebody good take that job because I knew how, I knew how critical it was going to be. And when Mike took it, I was just like, yes, like he is like the perfect person for the job. And I've said it many times. I've told him, um, you know, he, he, he was in, he had a really, really good job already. So when he pivoted into this, it was not without risk for him as an individual. So I was, I was really happy, um, when he stepped into that role because he's, he's organized, he's very smart. He's a good head for it. And then, of course, all the people on, you know, in Nottingham, they're great too. And it's easy to criticize DW, but and there's there's legitimate things to criticize. But generally speaking, they super care about the product, they care about the customers, and I think this is evidenced in the fact that they're partnering with the ITC, right? Like that's a direct engagement with the rest of us, and I think it's super positive, And I know they take it very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I got accused uh, in one of the podcasts recently of propaganda, and I don't want this to sound like propaganda because I'm not being paid <laughs> to, do, to say anything nice. I'm not getting anything for saying you anything nice. I just like the game, and that's why we do it, right? That's yeah. why we do the whole thing. What's wrong with saying being thankful for a team of thousands of people who work every single day to give us something that enriches our lives? I'm like, yes, thank you. Does that mean you can't criticize them? Of course not. You can always offer up constructive criticism. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you have to be relentlessly negative. That doesn't help anything. No. no. Hey, listen, I really appreciate your time, but I do have a couple more more kind of fringe things I want to ask just before we, before we bow out. I feel like we've touched on a lot of the big stuff and this amazing journey that you've been on. Uh, a couple of other things that, that I really want to squeeze in before we go. One is, and this is quite big, you mentioned your Cherokee heritage and the Cherokee Open at the time of recording, the Cherokee Open is, I feel like they're setting up tables right now. Uh, how great is it for you on a personal level to get to have this Cherokee Open happening? Am I right in saying this is the first year for it? Yeah, yes, and they are literally setting the tables up right now. And I was bummed that I couldn't make it this time, but I had other obligations. And I'm definitely going to make it out because I, I want to go see it. It's on the, um, the Cherokee tribe's land. So for me, it's like a 
like a pretty cool personal connection. Um, you know, like I said, I grew up with my grandpa te- like teaching me all about the heritage and all this cool stuff. And while, you know, I'm I, it, the way I grew up and everything, I'm pretty far removed from it. It's a cool part of my history as a, as a, as a family and as an individual. So yeah, that, that was not, I would be lying if I said that that wasn't a part of the decision there. Plus it's an it's a beautiful venue. It's in the Smoky mountains. It's absolutely gorgeous there. Um, but yeah, that was, it was kind of cool for me as a person to be able to be like, Hey, I'd love to go back and learn more about my, my, my history. Um, couldn't make it this year, but in the future, I'll definitely be there. Uh, another couple of things. One is the signals from the front line is one of the longest running podcasts. You kicked it off, as you said, in a little room with a bus stop right outside with a $10 microphone, not the best conditions, but you grew this thing into being this really great podcast. And it went for a very long time. Was it hard to hand over the reins to kind of step back and let your, let someone else raise your baby? Yes and no. Yes and no. Cause at that point I'd recorded over a thousand podcasts. Yeah. And I was, I was not sad to take a break. It was concerning that like, Hey, there's a legacy here and there's a lot of hard work and hours and hours and hours that we put into building this. And, um, if I wasn't confident in the team that was stepping in, I would not have done it, but kicker and, and the crew are passionate and they're, they're positive. I feel like they're, they're doing a tremendous job. Um, but for me, it was bittersweet because I was like, man, this is, I still enjoy doing it, but I am pretty fatigued. So it was nice yeah. to be able to take a step back. Sometimes it's nice just to not, like to stay involved from time to time, but not to have that relentless uh, schedule of having to do it. Like you can do it when you feel like doing it now. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, I definitely want to get back into podcasting because I really, I genuinely enjoy it. Uh, but but taking a break has, has been nice. I needed, I needed to just take a breather because we were recording, you know, up to three times a week at certain points. I feel like we're done, man. I think that's it. The only thing of the only other thing I'm a little bit curious about is uh, you kind of go through facial hair cycles. Is that just uh, you just get sick of what's on there and you grow some like I've seen sideburns. I've seen mustache. I've seen completely clean shaven. I'm sure you've had a beard at times. Is that just because whatever comes up, you feel like doing, you do it. Yeah, it's, I wish I had some cool reason, but it's it's. I usually get so absorbed into what I'm doing that I'll I'll forget to shave, and then I'll go a couple of weeks, and then I'm like, oh, I might as well grow it out, and then I'll yeah, grow it out. And yeah. I'm like, I look better clean shaven. Yeah, <laughs> I have a I have a well trimmed mustache these days. That's where yeah. I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Right. See, we've gone run the gamut of like big, serious, world changing issues before we went to air with the podcast through your whole life and some big stuff and then we finished on facial hair thank you so much mate i really appreciate you doing this <laughs> i feel we've, we've covered everything i feel like if people think there are questions we haven't asked feel free to get in touch but i'm pretty sure we've covered most of the stuff <laughs> well it's uh it's always a pleasure i think you have an amazing podcast and we're really thankful to have the talent that you bring and i didn't know that you used to be a shoutcaster for the all blacks which is amazing or used to do you work with them yeah you know, we're really thankful to have you in the hobby I, I was, um, yeah, I did the the ground announcing. You know, when you go to the ground and they, they score a, uh, they score points, and then there's this voice that comes over the speaker and says, "Those points were scored by this player, and now the score is such and such." And then some music plays. I did, I did that for the All Blacks. You're right. It was, um, which That's was so cool. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. <laughs> it gets a lot more cred for some reason. It gets a lot more cred than my 30 years of broadcasting in my TV career, my radio career. I did a few games for the All Blacks. People, people think that's way cooler than anything else. Hey, listen, thanks so much. It's great to catch up with you. And, um, you know, all the best for the next big phase. I feel like we're, you've done so much work already to get to where you are, and now you're just kind of starting on a new journey, and it's got to be exciting. Thank you very much. Yeah, and we, we never stop. We never stop striving forward until we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> great words to finish on. A huge thank you to Reese for giving up his time to be on the podcast. I'd better plug FrontlineGaming.org. I just ordered some terrain there. They have so many options. Go check it out. FrontlineGaming.org for terrain and details on upcoming events and so much more. Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate it. Hit me up on Facebook or The Steve Joel on Instagram if you have any feedback or suggestions. Until next time, I am Steve Joel and this has been 40K Game Changers. <laughs>